ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Jan Walker. Today we open our show with a local story. The site of the now demolished ABB manufacturing plant on Bloomington's west side is being considered as a location for a cardboard recycling plant. Bloomington Economic Development Corporation President Lynn Cohen told the Monroe County Redevelopment Commission on August 30th that an anonymous corporation approached the Indiana Economic Development Commission with the idea. And in this particular case, this prospect, which is a paper recycling facility, is looking at three sites. One of those is the ABB site here in Monroe County. And they propose a project to invest $350 million. Mm -hmm. It would generate 100 jobs, payable just under $30 an hour, very good jobs. It's also a very good activity. Coyne says the plant would recycle used cardboard into material that can be used for containers. However, the cardboard recycling facility could generate between 800,000 to over a million gallons of what is termed high strength waste per day. Bloomington Utilities Director Vic Kelson explained this high-strength waste, or high BOD waste, will have to be pre-treated before it can enter the city's sewer system. Uh, BOD is biochemical oxygen demand. Uh, it is what happens when you have organic materials like sugars or starches or uh, certain other chemicals that are in <coughs> wastewater. If that water then gets discharged to a stream, um, the uh, organisms in the stream consume the, these organic materials and deplete the oxygen in the stream, which kills fish and other organisms in the, in the stream. So, Kelson says the city's Dillman Road wastewater plant has the hydraulic capacity to handle the proposed facility's wastewater flow, but does not have the biological treatment capacity needed. This would be high-strength uh, high BOD waste. Uh, so the, the, the idea here is to uh, build a facility close by the manufacturing plant that would uh, consume uh, most of that BOD and basically render the wastewater from the plant at approximately the same strength as municipal sewage. And then that could be discharged to our sewer. Building an industrial waste pretreatment plant could cost the county between 14 and 18 million dollars, according to preliminary cost estimates provided by consultants Black and Veach. County Attorney Jeff Cockerell says even the lowest cost projection may be beyond the county's bonding capability. Cockerell and commission members say having an industrial waste pretreatment facility on Bloomington's west side could bring in other industries that produce high-strength waste. Kelson gave, as an example, breweries, distilleries, dairies, and some biomedical facilities. 
Because steam is involved in the recycling process, a steam-generating plant would have to be built on the property. The facility could also influence the county's plans to extend profile and gate parkways and could put an extra 150 trucks on area roads. Economic Development Commission President Lynn Cohen says he's consulting with Public Works Director Lisa Ridge on the issue. We did discuss with uh, Ms. Ridge the roadway construction. The road could be shifted. There are a variety of things. There's going to be a need for a road because of the truck shipments, but there might also be a north-south opportunity as well. The proposed recycling facility is being dubbed, quote, Project Picnic to protect the investing company's identity and plans from its competitors. Coyne says the facility will bring 100 new jobs with an average wage of $29 to $30 per hour. And these jobs are technical. They're process-controlled electrical, electrical maintenance. I forgive me for not being so into that, but these are, mm -hmm. these are technical skilled jobs that keep this thing operating, uh, operate the control systems, mm -hmm. how all that works. So they require a level of skill that justifies the pay. Referring to the county's master plan for the area, Commission Member Richard Martin indicated he found the 100 new jobs to be on the low side. I would like to see the county planning review this in the context of mm -hmm. the comprehensive plan for this area because right. there is in the comprehensive plan this designated as an employment site. The employment opportunity was looked at considerably more than 100 employees. County Attorney Jeff Cockerell emphasized the Commission's August 30th discussion was, quote, very preliminary, and he is still researching the proposed project. Monroe County is one of three sites being considered for the Cardboard Recycling Center. Cockerell says the company is expected to make its site selection this fall. In climate news this week, global warming has facilitated a most unusual shipping journey. In the Arctic, where warming is happening twice as fast as the rest of the planet, a Russian tanker sailed across the northern sea route in record speed and without the aid of an icebreaker for the first time. On its maiden journey, the tanker transported liquefied gas from Norway to South Korea in 19 days, about 30% faster than the regular route through the Suez Canal, the ship's owners boasted. Crossing the Northern Sea Route, the northernmost part of the voyage, took only 6.5 days. The ship's average speed during the passage exceeded 14 knots despite sailing through ice fields four feet thick and demonstrated the economic potential of using the North Northern Sea Route for the large-capacity vessel transits. Typically, shipping tankers are accompanied by icebreakers that clear paths through thick layers of ice. But this tanker is designed to sail independently through ice of up to 7 feet thick. Another 14 tankers of similar construction are planned. The northern sea route has historically been impossible to cross due to the region's thick sea ice. The world's rapidly rising temperatures have significantly thawed Arctic ice, and now some are envisioning year-round operation of this route. One environmental concern is that any discharge of crude oil or plastic will remain in the Arctic Ocean for thousands of years. 
A new peer-reviewed study by Harvard University researchers confirmed what investigative reports have long alleged. ExxonMobil knew about global climate change as early as the 1970s, but the company's executives buried the information and funded an aggressive disinformation campaign that delayed climate action for decades. The attorney generals of Massachusetts and New York are investigating ExxonMobil's climate cover-up and are looking for attorney generals from other states to join them in the investigation. In the past, Exxon accused journalists of cherry-picking their studies on Exxon's climate misinformation and urged the public to read their documents themselves. The Harvard researchers read as many Exxon-backed scientific studies as they could and compared them with Exxon's public communications. The researchers found that while Exxon scientists showed that oil burning fueled global warming, Exxon executives were carrying on a campaign of delay, doubt, and denial in the public. The environmental advocacy group 350.org says Exxon's actions constitute the largest corporate crime in history. According to another recent study, over 17 million residents of the lower 48 states live within a mile of an active oil or natural gas well. The study raises an alarm about the public health effects of living near wells, which has the potential to cause severe asthma, neurological problems, cancer, and some birth defects, such as lower birth weight, preterm birth, and heart deformities. Eliza Chokowski Lead author of the study said, quote, the closer you are to a well, the more likely you are to have a health impact, unquote. Of greatest concern is the fact that almost one and a half million children under age five live within a mile of active wells. Oil and gas wells emit pollutants into nearby water and air. Those released include particulate matter, benzene, nitrogen oxides, ozone, Volatile organic compounds and carbon monoxide all have been associated with numerous health problems in people living in the vicinity. Oil Change International holds that a fossil fuel subsidy is, quote, anything that rigs the game in favor of fossil fuels compared to other energy sources, unquote. A new study in the journal World Development has quantified the global subsidies for fossil fuels. The subsidies were almost $5 trillion in 2013 and over $5 trillion in 2015. According to the study, those subsidies are significant in three ways. One, they promote fossil fuel use, which causes climate change. Two, they are expensive. Three, they discourage investment in energy efficiency and renewable energy, which compete with the subsidized fossil fuels. Subsidies to the fossil fuel industry amounted to nearly 6% of global gross domestic product in 2011 and to 6.5% in 2013. Oil and coal received the largest subsidies. The top three subsidiaries of fossil fuels are China, the U.S., and Russia, respectfully. Meanwhile, other countries are actively investing in fossil fuel alternatives. In December, Germany is going to start running a zero-emission, hydrogen-powered commuter rail service. The trains initially will be used on smaller interurban routes. The trains, which are almost silent, will emit only water and will transport passengers as efficiently as diesel trains. 
Five federal German states have signed a letter of intent to buy 60 of the trains from a French manufacturer. Officials are hoping the trains will earn a profit in the first several years of operation and that the trains will eventually replace Germany's fleet of 4,000 diesel-powered trains. According to the European Union, about 20% of Europe's current trains run on diesel. The Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, and the UK have also expressed interest in the new trains. Germany is especially concerned about decreasing its greenhouse gas emissions so it reaches its target of reducing emissions by 40 percent by 2020. And a group of California scientists said that a fossil fuel phase-out limiting climate change and delivering energy entirely from wind, water, and sunlight is achievable. The 139 nations and their plan cover almost all of the greenhouse gas-emitting countries. The scientist plan would also facilitate a net gain of 24 million jobs by 2050 and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or less. The plan is theoretical and depends entirely on the political determination within each country to make the switch work. But the research researchers argued they have provided a guide towards an economic and social shift that could save economies around $20 trillion in health and climate cost each year. Mark Jacobson of Stanford University's Atmosphere and Energy Program says, quote, Policymakers don't usually want to commit to doing something unless there is some reasonable science that can show it is possible, and that is what we are trying to do, unquote. Professor Jacobson added that, quote, We are not saying that there is only one way we can do this, but having a scenario gives people direction, end quote. Jacobson and 26 colleagues reported in the journal Joule that their roadmaps to a new energy world free of fossil fuels and of nuclear energy can be achieved without the mining, transporting, or processing of fuels. WFHB interviewed Professor Jacobson in 2015 when he explained that Indiana could switch to 50% wind and 50% solar, wind for the northern part of the state and solar for the southern part. This was obviously proposed prior to the effort to kill solar in Indiana. Jacobson also said that switching would create 50,000 good-paying jobs in the state. Coal mining supports 2,500 jobs. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Jan Walker. We love to hear from your, our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. For today's Eco Report feature story, Norm Holy interviews McCormick Creek's state park naturalist Sam Arthur. It's Norm Holy from WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Sam Arthur. He's the interpretive naturalist at McCormick Creek Park. Uh, Sam, uh, would you? I think probably most of our listeners are familiar with the park, but could you just very briefly describe the the, the acreage? And, and the terrain that you have in the park? Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, here at McCormick's Creek State Park, um, 
as most of you might know, we were Indiana's first state park. We were established in 1916 as a gift from the people to the people of Indiana to celebrate the centennial of Indiana's statehood. And we started out with just about 400 acres that the Indiana Parks Commission was able to purchase for $5,250, which is just amazing to me to think about that. And over the years, we've been able to add little bits and pieces, parcels of land as they come available to the point where we're now at uh, 1,956 acres of land that we manage, which is not the biggest park in the system, but we're not the smallest. Um, as far as the terrain that we have here, we're in what's known as the Mitchell-Karst Plain, which runs from Owen County through Monroe and down into Lawrence County. And this is where that good Indiana limestone, that Bedford limestone that you think of in so many buildings uh, come from. And it's the Karst describes the topography that we have. Karst topography is noted for the sinkholes that you see throughout the area, the springs popping out of the hillsides, and, of course, the caves that we're so famously known for. So it's, um, it's a varied terrain, and I like to think that if you did an overhead view, especially during the winter, you can see this after a light snow, the surface of the land looks a lot like a golf ball. You've got the divots, and you've got the ridges, and it just kind of rolls and undulates like that. So it's a very unique landscape. Um, you've got a lot of topographic change. So it's a, it's a beautiful park. Um, those who are familiar with it, I think, would agree, and those who have never visited us, uh, I would highly recommend it. We're only about uh, 20 minutes west of Bloomington, and it's uh, a beautiful area if you're not familiar with it. I'm just curious about um, the, the the area between Flatwoods Park and McCormick Creek Park. So um, that's where the, the stream comes from that goes through the, the falls area. Um, is there any concern about water quality? Sure, yeah, you, you make a good point. The um, McCormick's Creek itself originates there in the, in the Flatwoods, and what happened between the Flatwoods and the park itself, of course, you've got individual property owners, you've got um, septic systems that, that might be influencing the water quality, but we do test the uh, creek regularly for E. coli during the summer season, and generally speaking, we've got a high-quality body of water. We do, as part of my job I do interpretive programming you know going out and uh, getting folks out in nature and one of the things we do are creek stumps where we actually go out and we'll look at different macroinvertebrates or bugs that are in the water some bugs like dirty water and some bugs can only live in clean water so generally speaking we find the clean water loving bugs oh that's good to hear um, what would you estimate the age of the oldest trees in the park to be? Our oldest trees are probably right in the neighborhood of 100 years or so. Um, most of the property, and like most of Indiana, was deforested as the settlers were clearing the land, trying to get agriculture established. And then over the years, um, you know, farmland was abandoned, 
park bought land that had been farmland and let um, nature take its course. And we've got some mature forest here. We have two dedicated nature preserves here on the park. But um, those are the two areas that have some of the biggest and most mature trees because those are state-dedicated nature preserves. Do you have a high population of ash in the, in the park? We do. We have um, a very high concentration of ash. Right around 18 to 20 percent of our forest is ash trees. And uh, what are you doing about the emerald ash borer? Well, in December of 2014, we were getting ready to take down some hazard tulip trees that had been uh, affected by tulip-scale insect during the droughts that we had in 2010, 2011, and 2012. We noticed an ash tree that looked like it was dying off. And so we uh, worked with our state forester to come out, and we took the tree down, peeled back the bark, and sure enough, sent the bug off for testing, and we were confirmed for emerald ash borer in December 2014. So that being said, what we ended up doing, and we, we figure at that point we'd already been infested for about three to four years, because by the time you start to see the crown die off and the shoots starting to come up from the base of the tree, you're, you're pretty well along in your infestation cycle. So one of the things that we did was start... Um, we removed the hazard trees that were going after recreational targets. And one of the things that the Indiana Parks Alliance, one of the projects that they've come up with is to identify some of these ash trees that are unaffected, and they're going to apply for the funding to come in and treat some of these native ash trees that aren't affected so that we can have a viable seed bank um, remain once this bug kind of makes its pass through here and we lose the vast majority of our ash trees. That sounds good. Um, I'd like to ask about the, uh, the deer population. What, what, approximately how many deer call McCormick Creek home? Well, it, it's, it's very difficult to make a population estimation because, you know, we're, we're not a closed system. We're, we're in a, a good place with our our uh, management efforts as far as the deer population. And a lot of people do ask me that, you know, where, where are the deer? Why don't I see the deer? And to that, I often respond, it's like, well, you know, they're wildlife. It's, it's fun for us to see them, but it's not necessarily good for them for us to see them. You shouldn't be able to um, drive down the road and have deer walk up to your car. Yes. Are there any uh, rough grouse in, in the park? Unfortunately, no. The, um, the rough grouse are really kind of disappearing from the landscape. Um, you've got a, a change of forest structure, and you've got, um, yeah, a, a bit of a climate change. And Steve Bax is uh, one of our uh, fish and wildlife guys who used to be the rough grouse specialist, and he could answer uh, your rough grouse questions a, a lot better than I could. Uh, just one final question. Um, let's, let's look out in the... In the distant future, um, what environmental concerns would you would come to mind if you thought about where where the park will be in fifty years? Well, I feel we're in a good place with the leadership that we have in the state park system. The, the parks have been guided well for the past hundred years, and I think that the leadership that's coming down the line 
is well set to continue that tradition. You know, that's part of what I do as an interpreter is we train that next generation. We, we create that interest in the landscape so that people feel that connection to it. And when they grow up and they have kids and they bring their kids out here, we know that we've done our jobs. And so I feel that the landscape will be in a good place for us. Um, hopefully in another 99 years, we'll celebrate 200 years of Indiana State Parks. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. This is In Nature. Soaring high in the sky, the striking sandhill crane often is heard before seen. In contrast to the familiar flying V of Canada geese, sandhill cranes fly in a mixed jumble, yodeling and trumpeting. The sandhill crane is a species of large crane of North America and extreme Northeast Siberia. Adult sandhill cranes weigh around 10 pounds, are 4 feet tall, and have a wingspan of over 6 feet. They are gray overall with a red forehead, white cheeks, and long, dark, pointed bills. Sandhill cranes fly with their long necks trailing behind and necks held straight. Dating back over two million years, pairs call and jump in a synchronized and complex mating dance. Sandhill cranes raise one brood of two to three chicks each spring, and the young stay with their parents until the following breeding season. Cranes are quite social and live in large family groups throughout the year. Although sandhill cranes do not breed in the WFHB listening area, these magnificent birds can be seen locally during spring and fall migration, especially at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area just south of Linton. But perhaps the most spectacular gathering of sandhill cranes is during fall migration at the Jasper Pulaski Fish and Wildlife Area in northeast Indiana. In late fall, 20 to 30,000 cranes gather to feed in local farm fields during the day and roost at night as one large communal flock in, in a field in front of the Jasper Pulaski Observation Tower. The sights and sounds of thousands of sandhill cranes are truly one of Indiana's unforgettable experiences. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And now it's time for our weekly events calendar. Hike around the lake at Spring Mill State Park for the Full Harvest Moon hike on Friday, September 8th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Meet Wyatt at the Lakeview Activity Center for this one-mile moderate hike. Enjoy a four-story night, also known as Jabberwocky, 
on Tuesday, September the 12th at Indy Fringe Theater, located at 719 East St. Clair in Indianapolis. The September theme is Lost and Found in the Forest, and you will hear seven 15-minute stories presented by members of the Indiana Forest Alliance. This after-work event includes stories, snacks, and a cash bar. The doors open at 5.30 p.m. and the stories begin at 6 p.m. For more information, contact Ellen at 317-576-9848 or ellen at storytellingarts.org. The Explore Monroe paddling trip is scheduled for Tuesday, September 12th from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Cutright State Recreation Area Middle Fork at Monroe Lake. You will see the quieter side of Monroe Lake during this guided paddling trip that will journey through backwaters, wetlands, bays, and slow-moving streams. You must be experienced and you must pre-register. Bring your own kayak or canoe or rent one, and don't forget to bring a lunch and water for this extended trip. A Hoosier River Watch workshop is scheduled for Friday, September the 15th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Johnson City Soil and Water Conservation District, located at 550 East Jefferson Street, Suite 202 in Franklin, Indiana. The River Watch workshop offers Hoosiers the opportunity to learn about watersheds, water pollution, and the ecological integrity of streams. During indoor classroom sessions and outdoor field work, this is a hands-on training. Bring waterproof boots, bug spray, sunscreen, drinking water, and a lunch and snacks. To sign up, call 317-736-9540, extension 101. The Indiana Audubon Society is conducting a spring mill fall birding trip on Saturday, September 16th from 9 to 11 a.m. at Spring Mill State Park. Spring Mill State Park naturalist and bird guide Wyatt Williams will guide visitors during the peak migration time for warblers, thrushes, and vireos. Terrain is easy to moderate. To moderate. Those interested can register online at the Indiana Audubon Society website. The tour begins at the Spring Mill Inn. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar, solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Hawley, and Sarah Vaughn. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Jan Walker. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. 
Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.